Chapter Five of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx. Translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part Two. The Transformation of Money into Capital Chapter 5. Contradictions in the General Formula of Capital The form which circulation takes when money becomes capital is opposed to all the laws we have hitherto investigated bearing on the nature of commodities, value, and money, and even of circulation itself. What distinguishes this form from that of the simple circulation of commodities is the inverted order of succession of the two antithetical processes, sale and purchase. How can this purely formal distinction between these processes change their character as it were by magic? But that is not all. This inversion has no existence for two out of the three persons who transact business together. As capitalist, I buy commodities from A and sell them again to B, but as a simple owner of commodities I sell them to B and then purchase fresh ones from A. A and B see no difference between the two sets of transactions. They are merely buyers or sellers. And I on each occasion meet them as a mere owner of either money or commodities, as a buyer or a seller. And what is more, in both sets of transactions I am opposed to A only as a buyer and to B only as a seller to the one only as money, to the other only as commodities, and to neither of them as capital or a capitalist, or as representative of anything that is more than money or commodities, or that can produce any effect beyond what money and commodities can. For me the purchase from A and the sale to B are part of a series. But the connection between the two acts exists for me alone. A does not trouble himself about my transaction with B nor does B about my business with A. And if I offered to explain to them the meritorious nature of my action in inverting the order of succession, they would probably point out to me that I was mistaken as to that order of succession, and that the whole transaction, instead of beginning with a purchase and ending with a sale, began, on the contrary, with a sale, and was concluded with a purchase. In truth, my first act, the purchase, was from the standpoint of A, a sale, and my second act, the sale was from the standpoint of B a purchase. Not content with that, A and B would declare that the whole series was superfluous and nothing but hocus-pocus, that for the future A would buy direct from B and B sell direct to A. Thus the whole transaction would be reduced to a single act forming an isolated, non-complemented phase in the ordinary circulation of commodities a mere sale from A's point of view, and from B's a mere purchase. The inversion, therefore, of the order of succession does not take us outside the sphere of the simple circulation of commodities, and we must rather look whether there is in this simple circulation anything permitting an expansion of the value that enters into circulation, and consequently a creation of surplus value. Let us take the process of circulation in a form under which it presents itself as a simple and direct exchange of commodities. This is always the case when two owners of commodities buy from each other, and on the settling day the amounts mutually owing are equal and cancel each other. The money in this case is money of account, and serves to express the value of the commodities by their prices, but is not itself in the shape of hard cash confronted with them. 
So far as regards use values, it is clear that both parties may gain some advantage. Both part with goods that, as use values, are of no service to them, and receive others that they can make use of. And there may also be a further gain. A, who sells wine and buys corn, possibly produces more wine with given labour time than farmer B could, and B, on the other hand, more corn than wine grower A could. A, therefore, may get, for the same exchange value, more corn, and B, more wine, than each would respectively get without any exchange, by producing his own corn and wine. With reference, therefore, to use value, there is good ground for saying that, quote, Exchange is a transaction by which both sides gain. End quote. Footnote. Quote, L'échange est une transaction admirable dans laquelle les deux contractants gagnent. Toujours. Des stuts de Tracy. Traité de la volonté et de ses effets. Paris, 1826, page 68. This work appeared afterwards as Traité d'économie politique. End footnote. It is otherwise with exchange value. A man who has plenty of wine and no corn treats with a man who has plenty of corn and no wine. An exchange takes place between them of corn to the value of fifty for wine of the same value. This act produces no increase of exchange value either for the one or the other, for each of them already possessed, before the exchange, a value equal to that which he acquired by means of that operation. Footnote. Mercier de la Rivière, Loco Sateto, page 544. End of footnote. The result is not altered by introducing money as a medium of circulation between the commodities and making the sale and the purchase two distinct acts. Footnote. Quote, que l'un de ces deux valeurs soit argent, ou que soit toutes deux marchandises usuelles, rien de plus indifférent en soi. End quote. Mercier de la Rivière, Loco Sateto, page 543, and footnote. The value of a commodity is expressed in its price before it goes into circulation, and is therefore a precedent condition of circulation, not its result. Footnote. Quote, Ce ne sont pas les contractants qui prononcent sur la valeur. Elle est décidée avant la convention. End quote. Les trois page 906, end footnote. Abstractedly considered, that is, apart from circumstances not immediately flowing from the laws of the simple circulation of commodities, there is in an exchange nothing, if we accept the replacing of one use value by another, but a metamorphosis, a mere change in the form of the commodity. The same exchange value, i.e., the same quantity of incorporated social labor, remains throughout in the hands of the owner of the commodity, first in the shape of his own commodity, then in the form of the money for which he exchanged it, and lastly in the shape of the commodity he buys with that money. This change of form does not imply a change in the magnitude of the value. But the change which the value of the commodity undergoes in this process is limited to a change in its money form. This form exists first as the price of the commodity offered for sale, then as an actual sum of money, which, however, was already expressed in the price, and lastly, as the price of an equivalent commodity. This change of form no more implies, taken alone, a change in the quantity of value than does the change of a five-pound note into sovereigns, half-sovereigns and shillings. So far, therefore, as the circulation of commodities, 
effects a change in the form alone of their values, and is free from disturbing influences, it must be the exchange of equivalents. Little as vulgar economy knows about the nature of value, yet whenever it wishes to consider the phenomena of circulation in their purity, it assumes that supply and demand are equal, which amounts to this, that their effect is nil. If, therefore, as regards the use values exchanged, both buyer and seller may possibly gain something, this is not the case as regards the exchange values. Here we must rather say, where equality exists, there can be no gain. Footnote. Quote, Dove è egualità non è lucro. End quote. Galliani. Della moneta in custodi. Parte moderna. Fourth book, page 244. End footnote. It is true. Commodities may be sold at prices deviating from their values, but these deviations are to be considered as infractions of the laws of the exchange of commodities, which in its normal state is an exchange of equivalents, consequently no method for increasing value. Footnote. Quote, Les chances deviennent désavantageux pour l'une des parties lorsque quelque chose étrangère vient diminuer ou exagérer le prix. Alors l'égalité est blessée. Mais la lésion procède de cette cause et non de l'échange. Le Tron, Logos Ateto, page 904. Next footnote. Quote, L'échange est de sa nature un contrat d'égalité que se fait de valeur pour valeur égale. Il n'est donc pas un moyen de s'enrichir, puisque l'on donne autant que l'on reçoit. End quote. Le Trosne, Locos Ateto, page 903. End footnote. Hence, we see that behind all attempts to represent the circulation of commodities as a source of surplus value, there lurks a quid pro quo, a mixing up of use value and exchange value. For instance, Condillac says, it is not true that on an exchange of commodities we give value for value. On the contrary, each of the two contracting parties in every case gives a less for a greater value. If we really exchanged equal values, neither party could make a profit. And yet, they both gain or ought to gain. Why? The value of a thing consists solely in its relation to our wants. What is more to the one is less to the other and vice versa. It is not to be assumed that we offer for sale articles required for our own consumption. We wish to part with a useless thing in order to get one that we need. We want to give less for more. It was natural to think that, in an exchange, value was given for value, whenever each of the articles exchanged was of equal value with the same quantity of gold. But there is another point to be considered in our calculation. The question is whether we both exchange something superfluous for something necessary. End quote. Footnote. Condillac, Le Commerce et le Gouvernement, 1776. Edith Der et Molinari in the Mélange d'économie politique. Paris, 1847, pages 267 and 291. End footnote. We see in this passage how Condillac not only confuses use value with exchange value, but in a really childish manner assumes that in a society in which the production of commodities is well developed, each producer produces his own means of subsistence, and throws into circulation only the excess over his own requirements. Footnote. Le Tron, therefore, answers his friend Condillac with justice as follows. Quote, Dans une société formée, il n'y a pas de surabondant en aucun genre. End quote. At the same time, in a bantering way, he remarks, 
quote, if both the persons who exchange receive more to an equal amount and part with less to an equal amount, they both get the same. End quote. It is because Condillac has not the remotest idea of the nature of exchange value that he has been chosen by Herr Professor Wilhelm Roscher as a proper person to answer for the soundness of his own childish notions. See Roscher's Die Grundlagen der Nationalökonomie, Dritte Auflage, 1858. Still, Condillac's argument is frequently used by modern economists more especially when the point is to show that the exchange of commodities in its developed form, commerce, is productive of surplus value. For instance, commerce adds value to products, for the same products in the hands of consumers are worth more than in the hands of producers, and it may strictly be considered an act of production. Quote. Footnote S. P. Newman, Elements of Political Economy, Andover, New York, 1835, page 175. End footnote. But commodities are not paid for twice over, once on account of their use-value, and again on account of their value. And though the use-value of a commodity is more serviceable to the buyer than to the seller, its money-form is more serviceable to the seller. Would he otherwise sell it? We might therefore just as well say that the buyer performs strictly an act of production, by converting stockings, for example, into money. If commodities, or commodities and money, of equal exchange value and consequently equivalence are exchanged, it is plain that no one abstracts more value from than he throws into circulation. There is no creation of surplus value, and, in its normal form, the circulation of commodities demands the exchange of equivalence. But in actual practice the process does not retain its normal form. Let us therefore assume an exchange of non-equivalence. In any case, the market for commodities is only frequented by owners of commodities, and the power which these persons exercise over each other is no other than the power of their commodities. The material variety of these commodities is the material incentive to the act of exchange, and makes buyers and sellers mutually dependent, because none of them possesses the object of his own wants, and each holds in his hand the object of another's wants. Besides these material differences of their use-values, there is only one other difference between these commodities, namely, that between their bodily form and the form into which they are converted by sale, the difference between commodities and money. And consequently the owners of commodities are distinguishable only as sellers, those who own commodities, and buyers, those who own money. Suppose, then, that by some inexplicable privilege, the seller is enabled to sell his commodities above their value, that is worth 100 for 110, in which case the price is nominally raised 10%. The seller, therefore, pockets a surplus value of 10. But after he has sold, he becomes a buyer. A third owner of commodities comes to him now as a seller, who in this capacity also enjoys the privilege of selling his commodities 10% too dear. Our friend gained 10 as a seller, only to lose it again as a buyer. Footnote. Quote, By the augmentation of the nominal value of the produce, sellers not enriched, since what they gain as sellers, they precisely expend in the quality of buyers. End quote. The Essential Principles of the Wealth of Nations, etc., London, 1797, page 66. End footnote. The net result is that all owners of commodities sell their goods to one another at 10% above their value, which comes precisely to the same as if they sold them at their true value. Such a general and nominal rise of prices has the same effect as if the values had been expressed in weight of silver, 
instead of in weight of gold. The nominal prices of commodities would rise, but the real relation between their values would remain unchanged. Let us make the opposite assumption, that the buyer has the privilege of purchasing commodities under their value. In this case, it is no longer necessary to bear in mind that he in his turn will become a seller. He was so before he became buyer. He had already lost 10% in selling before he gained 10% as buyer. Footnote. Quote, si l'on a forcé de donner pour dix-huit livres une quantité de telle production qui en valait vingt-quatre, lorsqu'on employera ce même argent à acheter, on aura également pour dix-huit livres ce que l'on paye vingt-quatre. End quote. Le Tron, Locus Citato, page 897. End of footnote. Everything is just as it was. The creation of surplus value, and therefore the conversion of money into capital, can consequently be explained neither on the assumption that commodities are sold above their value, nor that they are bought below their value. Footnote. Quote, Chaque vendeur ne peut donc parvenir à richerir habituellement ses marchandises qu'en se soumettant aussi à payer habituellement plus cher les marchandises des autres vendeurs. Et par la même raison, chaque consommateur ne peut payer habituellement moins cher ce qu'il achète qu'en se soumettant aussi à une diminution semblable sur le prix des choses qu'il veut. End quote. Mercier de la Rivière, Loco Citato, page 555, end footnote. The problem is in no way simplified by introducing irrelevant matters after the manner of Colonel Torrance. Quote, A factual demand consists in the power and inclination aside exclamation mark added by marks end of aside on the part of consumers to give for commodities either by immediate or circuitous barter some greater portion of capital than their production costs end quote. footnote torrance an essay on the production of wealth london eighteen twenty one page three hundred forty nine end footnote in relation to circulation producers and consumers meet only as buyers and sellers to assert that the surplus value acquired by the producer has its origin in the fact that consumers pay for commodities more than their value is only to say, in other words, the owner of commodities possesses, as a seller, the privilege of selling too dear. The seller has himself produced the commodities or represents their producer, but the buyer has to no less extent produced the commodities represented by his money, or represents their producer. The distinction between them is that one buys and the other sells. The fact that the owner of the commodities, under the designation of producer, sells them over their value, and, under the designation of consumer, pays too much for them, does not carry us a single step further. Footnote. The idea of profits being paid by the consumers is assuredly very absurd. Who are the consumers? G. Ramsay, An Essay on the Distribution of Wealth, Edinburgh, 1836, page 183. End footnote. To be consistent, therefore, the upholders of the delusion that surplus value has its origin in a nominal rise of prices, or in the privilege which the seller has of selling too dear, must assume the existence of a class that only buys and does not sell, i.e., only consumes and does not produce. The existence of such a class is inexplicable from the standpoint we have so far reached, viz. that of simple circulation. But let us anticipate. The money with which such a class is constantly making purchases must constantly flow into their pockets without any exchange, gratis, by might or right, 
from the pockets of the commodity owners themselves. To sell commodities above their value to such a class is only to crib back again a part of the money previously given to it. Footnote. Quote, when a man is in want of a demand, does Mr. Malthus recommend him to pay some other person to take off his goods? Is a question put by an angry disciple of Ricardo to Malthus, who, like his disciple, Parson Chalmers, economically glorifies his class of simple buyers or consumers. See, and inquire into those principles respecting the nature of demand and the necessity of consumption lately advocated by Mr. Malthus, etc. London, 1821, page 55. End footnote. The towns of Asia Minor thus paid a yearly money tribute to ancient Rome. With this money Rome purchased from them commodities, and purchased them too dear. The provincials cheated the Romans, and thus got back from their conquerors, in the course of trade, a portion of the tribute. Yet, for all that, the conquered were the really cheated. Their goods were still paid for with their own money. That is not the way to get rich, or to create surplus value. Let us therefore keep within the bounds of exchange, where sellers are also buyers, and buyers sellers. Our difficulty may perhaps have arisen from treating the actors as personifications, instead of as individuals. A may be clever enough to get the advantage of B or C without their being able to retaliate. A sells wine worth forty pounds to B, and obtains from him in exchange corns to the value of fifty pounds. A has converted his forty pounds into fifty pounds, has made more money out of less, and has converted his commodities into capital. Let us examine this a little more closely. Before the exchange, we had forty pounds worth of wine in the hands of A, and fifty pounds worth of corn in those of B, a total value of ninety pounds. After the exchange, we have still the same total value of ninety pounds. The value in circulation has not increased by one iota. It is only distributed differently between A and B. What is a loss of value to B is surplus value to A. What is minus to one is plus to the other. The same change would have taken place if A, without the formality of an exchange, had directly stolen the ten pounds from B. The sum of the values in circulation can clearly not be augmented by any change in their distribution, any more than the quantity of the precious metals in a country by a Jew selling a Queen Anne's farthing for a guinea. The capitalist class as a whole in any country cannot overreach themselves. Footnote. Deste de Tracy, although or perhaps because he was a member of the Institute, held the opposite view. He says industrial capitalists make profits because quote, they all sell for more than it has cost to produce, and to whom do they sell? In the first instance to one another. End quote. Loco Citato, page two hundred and thirty nine. End footnote. Turn and twist, then, as we may, the fact remains unaltered. If equivalents are exchanged, no surplus value results, and if non-equivalents are exchanged, still no surplus value. Footnote. Quote, Les chances qui se fait de deux valeurs égales n'augment ni ne diminuent la masse des valeurs subsistantes dans la société. Les chances de deux valeurs inégales ne changent rien non plus à la somme des valeurs sociales, Bien qu'il ajoute à la fortune de l'un ce qu'il ôte de la fortune de l'autre. J.B. Say, Loco Citato, Second Book, pages 443 and 444. Say, not in the least troubled as to the consequences of this statement, borrows it almost word for word from the physiocrats. 
the following example will show how M. Say turned to account the writings of the physiocrats, in his day quite forgotten, for the purpose of expanding the value of his own. His most celebrated saying, quote, On n'achète des produits qu'avec des produits, end quote, Locasiteto, second book, page 441, runs as follows in the original physiocratic work. Les productions ne se paient qu'avec des productions. Le Tron, Locusiteto, page 899, end footnote. Circulation, or the exchange of commodities, begets no value. Footnote. Quote, exchange confers no value at all upon products. End quote. F. Wayland, The Elements of Political Economy, Boston, 1843, page 169, end footnote. The reason is now therefore plain why, in analyzing the standard form of capital, the form under which it determines the economic organization of modern society, we entirely left out of consideration its most popular, and so to say antediluvian forms, merchants' capital and moneylenders' capital. The circuit MCM, buying in order to sell dearer, is seen most clearly in genuine merchants' capital. But the movement takes place entirely within the sphere of circulation, since, however, it is impossible by circulation alone to account for the conversion of money into capital, for the formation of surplus value, it would appear that merchants' capital is an impossibility, so long as equivalents are exchanged. Footnote. Under the rule of invariable equivalents, commerce would be impossible. J. Updike, A Treatise on Political Economy, New York, 1851, pages 66-69. Quote, the difference between real value and exchange value is based upon this fact, namely, that the value of a thing is different from the so-called equivalent given for it in trade, i.e., that this equivalent is no equivalent. End quote. F. Engels, Locusiteto, page 96. End footnote. That, therefore, it can only have its origin in the twofold advantage gained over both the selling and the buying producers by the merchant who parasitically shoves himself in between them. It is in this sense that Franklin says, quote, War is robbery, commerce is generally cheating. End of quote. Footnote Benjamin Franklin, Works, Second Volume, Edition Sparks in Positions to be Examined Concerning National Wealth, page 376. End footnote. If the transformation of merchants' money into capital is to be explained otherwise than by the producers being simply cheated, a long series of intermediate steps would be necessary, which at present, when the simple circulation of commodities forms our only assumption, are entirely wanting. What we have said with reference to merchants' capital applies still more to moneylenders' capital. In merchants' capital, the two extremes, the money that is thrown upon the market and the augmented money that is withdrawn from the market, are at least connected by a purchase and a sale, in other words, by the movement of the circulation. In moneylenders' capital, the form MCM is reduced to the two extremes without a mean, MM, money exchanged for more money, a form that is incompatible with the nature of money, and therefore remains inexplicable from the standpoint of the circulation of commodities. Hence Aristotle, quote, Since chromatistic is a double science, one part belonging to commerce, the other to economic, the latter being necessary and praiseworthy, the former based on circulation and with justice disapproved, for it is not based on nature but on mutual cheating, therefore the usurer is most rightly hated, because money itself is the source of his gain, and is not used for the purposes for which it was invented. For it originated for the exchange of commodities, 
but interest makes out of money more money. Hence its name, Greek tokos, interest and offspring, for the begotten are like those who beget them. But interest is money of money, so that of all modes of making a living, this is the most contrary to nature. End quote. Footnote. Aristotle, Logosateto, page 10. End footnote. In the course of our investigation, we shall find that both merchant's capital and interest-bearing capital are derivative forms, and at the same time it will become clear why these two forms appear in the course of history before the modern standard form of capital. We have shown that surplus value cannot be created by circulation, and therefore that in its formation something must take place in the background, which is not apparent in the circulation itself. Footnote. Quote, Profit in the usual condition of the market is not made by exchanging. Had it not existed before, neither could it after that transaction. End quote. Ramsey, Locusiteto, page 184. End footnote. But can surplus value possibly originate anywhere else than in circulation, which is the sum total of all the mutual relations of commodity owners, as far as they are determined by their commodities? Apart from circulation, the commodity owner is in relation only with his own commodity. So far as regards value, that relation is limited to this, that the commodity contains a quantity of his own labor, that quantity being measured by a definite social standard. This quantity is expressed by the value of the commodity, and since the value is reckoned in money of account, this quantity is also expressed by a price, which we will suppose to be ten pounds but his labor is not represented both by the value of the commodity and by a surplus over that value, not by a price of ten that is also a price of eleven, not by a value that is greater than itself. The commodity owner can, by his labor, create value, but not self-expanding value. He can increase the value of his commodity by adding fresh labor, and therefore more value to the value in hand, by making, for instance, leather into boots. The same material has now more value, because it contains a greater quantity of labor. The boots have therefore more value than the leather, but the value of the leather remains what it was. It has not expanded itself, has not, during the making of the boots, annexed surplus value. It is therefore impossible that outside the sphere of circulation a producer of commodities can, without coming into contact with other commodity owners, expand value, and consequently convert money or commodities into capital. It is therefore impossible for capital to be produced by circulation, and it is equally impossible for it to originate apart from circulation. It must have its origin both in circulation and yet not in circulation. We have therefore got a double result. The conversion of money into capital has to be explained on the basis of the laws that regulate the exchange of commodities in such a way that the starting point is the exchange of equivalents. Footnote from the foregoing investigation, the reader will see that this statement only means that the formation of capital must be possible even though the price and value of a commodity be the same, for its formation cannot be attributed to any deviation of the one from the other. If prices actually differ from values, we must, first of all, reduce the former to the latter, in other words, treat the difference as accidental in order that the phenomena may be observed in their purity and our observations not interfered with by disturbing circumstances that have nothing to do with the process in question. We know, moreover, that this reduction is no mere scientific process. The continual oscillations in prices, their rising and falling, compensate each other, 
and reduce themselves to an average price, which is their hidden regulator. It forms the guiding star of the merchant or the manufacturer in every undertaking that requires time. He knows that when a long period of time is taken, commodities are sold neither over nor under, but at their average price. If therefore he thought about the matter at all, he would formulate the problem of the formation of capital as follows. How can we account for the origin of capital on the supposition that prices are regulated by the average price, i.e., ultimately, by the value of the commodities? I say ultimately, because average prices do not directly coincide with the values of commodities, as Adam Smith, Ricardo, and others believe. End of footnote. Our friend, Moneybags, who as yet is only an embryo capitalist, must buy his commodities at their value, must sell them at their value, and yet at the end of the process must withdraw more value from circulation than he threw into it at the starting. His development into a full-grown capitalist must take place both within the sphere of circulation and without it. These are the conditions of the problem. Hic rodus, hic salta. End of Part 2, Chapter 5